This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, Loch has been hit by an algal bloom disaster. What's happening? Loch is Ireland's largest lake and the source of 40% of Northern Ireland's drinking water. It's made the headlines recently as concern grows that the loch is headed for an environmental disaster due to a resurgence of toxic blue-green algal blooms. Now, the algae have left animals dead and prompted Northern Ireland Water to issue statements assuring people that the water is safe to drink. The cause of the algal bloom has been attributed to a number of factors, including agricultural runoff and the extraction of sand from the bed of the lake. So today we're looking at what this algal bloom is, its devastating impacts and what can be done about it. And we're joined by Shauna Corr, who's an environment correspondent and columnist with many news outlets in Ireland, North and South, including the Irish Mirror and Belfast Live. Shauna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Laura. Now, Shona, I guess let's not focus on the causes just yet, but what exactly is this algal bloom? Well, it's interesting. So they call it an algal bloom, but it's actually caused by a bacteria called cyanobacteria. And it grows when the conditions are really good for it to grow. So it needs huge nitrates, phosphorus load, and then that coupled with rising temperatures because of the climate crisis has caused what we've seen this summer. So... Um, not so long ago, actually, Loch Ness Partnership did a bit of a report on the impact of the climate crisis on Loch Ness, and they found that the water temperature there has risen by one degrees. But the thing that we have to bear in mind is that without the nitrates and the phosphorus in the river, the algae wouldn't have anything to eat to feed itself. So we've seen, I mean, experts talking about this problem said they haven't seen anything like it for 50 years but they also admitted that there's been an 80% likelihood of it happening and they sort of knew the risk for the last 20 years. So Loch Ness, interesting because it is such a huge lake. So about 42% of Northern Ireland drains into it. So that's ground water. That would be the rivers and everything else. And obviously then you've got agricultural runoff going in with that. You've got um, there's sewage outlets also within it and wastewater outlets. So it's taken or wastewater after it's been treated from NI water. So that's entering the lake. And you've also got household septic tanks draining into it as well. So that's seen a huge, huge, huge nutrient load just increase and increase over the decades. So we're looking at one big lock that's taking all of the difficult waste, let's say, from Northern Ireland. That is, that's a huge burden on an ecosystem. So can you tell us a little bit what, what we've seen at Loch Ney then in recent weeks? It has been devastating, you know, um, that this all sort of kicked off with reports of dogs dying after being taken for a walk around the lock paths with their owners. So we were reporting on those issues kind of since May, June, July. They were dying and nobody knew why they were dying. They'd maybe been frolicking in the water, not necessarily drinking it. But so we had those incidents happen. Um, at the time, the powers that be didn't really know what was happening. They were like, we're going to take tests. And we're going to see what happened. And then, as I understand it, the first algal bloom was identified in Rez Woods, which is on the Antrim coast of the loch 
in about May time. And it just seems to have gotten worse and worse and worse over the months. And, you know, the changes in weather patterns haven't really helped. I mean, we had our wettest, our hottest June and our wettest July. So if you think of all of those things combined, so there's more water running into it after a really, really good situation where the algae could grow because it was so hot as well. And on top of the dogs, then you have had, we've seen pictures of dead swans. Fish have died, although there haven't been really any massive fish kills. And I'm told that that's because they're more able to move and move away from the areas that are causing problems. So many of us will have seen then, Sean, have seen the photos of this. It's pretty unpleasant to look at. But for any of our listeners who haven't come across this yet, can you describe what it actually looks like? It's a green, it's a big green medicine mess. You know, you, you stand on the shoreline and you look out in front of you and all you can see is green where water should be. Um, in some areas, it's really, really thick and you can smell it. It smells like a gas in the air. And I've spoken to people. I headed down to the week for Loch Ness last weekend and I spoke to people who live around the shoreline and they were telling me that the first thing that hit them was the smell. They thought maybe there were gas leaks. Um, I've also spoken to a fisherman who hasn't been able to work all summer because he said there aren't enough fish and there was only sort of three weeks of eel fishing where they would expect to normally get three months. So he'd been taking visitors over to an island in the middle of the lock called Coney Island. And by accident, he was he, he managed to get some of this water in his mouth and he became ill after it with all of the sort of gastro symptoms that you would spec- expect with having ingested something that your body couldn't deal with. So that it was really, really tough for him. But I have heard reports of that happening. And then we have the issue of Loch Ness Rescue, who's, it's a volunteer force. They like the RNLI, where they would go out onto the lock and help people who are in trouble. And they've basically come to the decision that unless it's life or death, they're not going to put their volunteers at risk because this algae, if ingested, does cause human health problems as well. So this is so hard to believe, Sean, when you think of it in a modern jurisdiction. It's 2023. We should have checks and balances when it comes to this type of pollution and this level of pollution is so serious. So you did mention that there was talk of maybe an understanding that this was possible. It's not, is it an old problem? Is it a new problem? Or it's obviously never got to this point before. Well, algae does exist naturally within the environment. um, But it's in all the 50 years that people have been, you know, monitoring what's going on in the lock. um, A scientist from AFBI said they have never witnessed anything like it really. So Although it is a natural occurrence, it would occur in like maybe small areas or a little bit here or a little bit there, but never have we seen it to this level. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, the images from space that were taken by the European Space Agency. It just shows a green lock and you can't escape lock now. It is literally in the center of of the north. Um, it's our biggest freshwater lake on the island. So I don't think anybody, although they might have expected it, I don't think anybody ever expected it to this level. And then what's the impact then on the ecology of the lake? We've talked about what you can see from shores or indeed space, which is hard to comprehend. But what's happening under the surface then? Well, there are still fish under the surface. I have been told um, we've obviously got a really sort of, we've got the Loch Ness Eel Partnership, which would fish for eels and reports from eel fishermen have suggested that the eels looked really sort of skinny and starved this year, whereas other years they looked healthy when they were fishing them. So there obviously is something going on underneath the water. Um, algal blooms will reduce the amount of oxygen available for the fish to intake. 
and there have been fish deaths, although they haven't been specifically linked to this algal bloom. And on top of that, we've also got a really interesting scenario that's unfolded throughout the summer where, and I'm sure you maybe have this in freshwater lakes across the country, where people will notice the flies. And Loch Ness has a very specific fly called the Loch Ness fly, but all summer people have been saying, where are the flies? Normally, if you live on the Loch Shore in Bracca or Arbo or Antrim, your windows would be covered in these things if you if you turn the lights on at night. But this year, there has been a marked absence and... That's really worrying for a number of reasons because these flies provide food. They provide food for the birds over winter. They also provide food for the fish in the locks. So they won't be, that that won't be available for them. So what happens is, and I looked this up because I was a bit intrigued about how the whole sort of ecosystem operates. They would kind of be at the bottom. So these flies would lay their eggs on the surface and then they would float down to the bottom of the lake. And and they can't do that now then because this algae is almost like a blanket then, I would imagine, under the surface, depriving every, everything below. Well, I, yeah, it would seem that way. I mean, there obviously has to be a bit of scientific exploration around this to see what has actually happened to the flies and the mayflies. But it just seemed to all come at once. So you had the algal bloom and a marked noticeable absence of these flies which would be really the foundation of the entire ecosystem when you think about it. It does, when you describe it, seem like such an ecological disaster. You're talking about dead bird life, uh, sick dogs, skinnier than usual eels and no sign of these flies. Something is very much amiss, even without seeing the photos of how awful this algal bloom looks. You mentioned just how important it is as a resource to Northern Ireland. Is it hard to overstate that? I mean, 40% of our water comes from it. But on top of that, you know, NI water, they put wastewater into it and they extract drinking water from it. But on top of that, I mean, it also supports a fishing industry, an eel industry and tourism on a massive scale as well. So we've seen businesses have to close their doors. I've spoken to paddleboarders who haven't been able to use it all summer. So their business is impacted. And then you've got wild swimmers who used it regularly on Antrim all around the coast and they haven't been able to go in all summer. So, and a lot of those, a lot of the wild swimmers would say it's great for their mental health and they love to get out there and to have this resource on their doorstep was amazing, but they literally haven't been able to use it all summer. I've spoken to one lady who was so disgusted about what was going on that she then set up a community group to try and find a solution for this. So, Mary had spoken to me earlier in August and she'd said, you know, I got home after a swim in the lock. It had been bad in July and then it seemed to improve a little bit. And then it started to get really bad again in August. But she'd sort of been in the lock in the interim part and said she was absolutely devastated to get home, take her swimming suit off and find this algae on the inside of the swimming suit. So she kind of panicked. She had cats and dogs in the house and was really concerned about whether they would ingest it and it would harm them. So she hasn't been back in the lake since then, really. So it's a massive resource, but it's completely unusable. So it's a community resource. It's a delicate ecosystem that's in dire trouble here. And you mentioned, too, it's also responsible for a lot of drinking water. And is that impacted or are treatment plants able to handle this algal bloom? I have spoken to NI Water quite a bit about this because there were massive public concerns about whether this could bypass their filters and get into people's drinking water, which is coming out the tap. So about 460,000 homes in the north are getting their drinking water from Loch Ness. So that's quite a big chunk. You know, it's 
over 40%. And they have said that when they're designing their water treatment, that they do that with algal blooms in mind because obviously they knew that they could happen. So they said that the water is safe to drink, um, but there have been reports of people showing that they're worried about finding green residue in water that has come out of the tap if it's been sitting in sunlight. And I did speak to one woman who lives on the lock shore who keeps horses and her horses were out in the field in the summer because it was quite nice. And she had this water trough inside that happened to be under a skylight. And she said when she went back to it after a month to sort of clean out the stables so she could put the horses back indoors, she noticed this bright green growth inside the water. And I water say it is safe to drink. Um, we have to trust that they're able to look after this, although it was said in the press briefing that was held last week that they would like to be able to increase and better treat the water if they were given the funding to improve what they can actually do. But I have to sort of say again that they say the water is safe to drink. So in terms of dealing with this as an ecological disaster, I'd imagine it's not a simple answer. It's nothing like lifting algae out of the water and that's the end of that. Are they saying anything about how long it'll take to recover? Or is it just the case then that this will only happen if the root causes are fixed? And we'll get to the root causes in a couple of minutes. Well, the department that oversees Loch Ness is the Department for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. Um, underneath the department sits Northern Ireland Environment Agency, which is a part of the department. So that's not an independent agency. And they said that there are two options. So they can either try and treat it with a range of treatments in the lock. But they said that there's mixed results from that. And it depends on what's going on in that area at any specific time. But option number one is obviously to reduce the pollution that's entering the lock. But their own reports suggest that that could take 20 years. And then you have to have the political will to do that. And when it comes to agriculture, which seems to be the case across the island, you've got this sort of mixed scenario where it's You've got farmers having to spread cereal fields if their cattle are held indoors. And we've also got a huge chicken industry. We've got a huge pig industry. And over the last 10 years, those have grown exponentially in the north. So we've arrived at a situation where there were plans in place to drive down the nitrates entering the waterways. But since a strategy was introduced called Going for Growth, which was designed to ramp up agricultural production, it has started to go back up again. So the nitrates action plans that are in place in the north appear to anybody looking at the, at the statistics not to be working. So with going for growth, there was a marked difference. So you had 2012 when that was introduced and the phosphorus load has increased into the rivers. We've also had increases of nitrates heading into the rivers and that would be from the likes of slurry and fertilizer. Um yeah, so I mean, it, it is a political problem. So it's one that we need politicians around a table to make agreements with farmers unions, you know, and to highlight pe highlight this issue and the causes of it, because, you know, farmers will be aware that this is going to affect them as well. So around the lock, you will have a lot of private farmland as well. So their animals are going to be coming right up to the lock's water. So I'm sure within themselves, they'll be having concerns about the impact of this algal growth. So this is a very similar push and pull that we would be all seeing in, in the Republic as well, in terms of the ramping up, as you say, of agricultural output and the environmental arguments for and against that. But if you're looking at those causes, nitrates in particular, and agricultural runoff playing a role, is it combined with the warming weather then that they think this has created the perfect storm for this lock? 
It is the the warming weather has had an impact, um, and they say that that is part of the problem. But I think we need to remember: if you didn't have the source pollution, the problem wouldn't exist in the first place. So if you didn't have the massive loads of nitrates and phos- phosphorus, like in Loch Ness right now, the algae wouldn't have the food they need to eat to grow to such huge levels. So is it clear, do you think, Sean, at this stage that this situation really couldn't have happened without human interference? That's a given now, is it? I would say so. Um, well, we know climate couldn't have happened without human interference as well, but without the pollution entering the waterway. And that happens because we purposely spread fertilizers on the land. We purposely discharge our wastewater into Loch Ness, and we purposely have septic tanks draining into it as well. So without all of those inputs, we might not be seeing what we're seeing now. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. Have we seen it impact any other lakes then in the island of Ireland? Have you seen anything even on a smaller scale that looks a little similar to this? Well, with um, Loch Ness, there have actually been 168 confirmed blooms across 65 sites in the north. And I know um, it has been confirmed at Loch Lean and Killarney as well. So there are a few lakes impacted across the island. Um, we've got Loch Erne that's been impacted. And from Loch Ness, we've got the River Ban, which feeds up to the north coast. And there have been numerous confirmed tests taken along the River Ban as well. And Throughout the summer, then we saw the department put up warnings, don't swim on the north coast because algal blooms then had washed out to sea and been washing up on the shores of our beaches. So although this seems like an internal situation, it seems to be covering the coastline of the north. And I don't think anything quite to this extent has been seen in any of the other places, but this isn't, it, it isn't a lone situation. And I did speak to water experts from the south and they kind of said, well, this sort of highlights what could be coming down the line if we don't get to grips with the pollution that we're putting into our waterways. And Shona, you mentioned the political will and the tricky political situation, let's say, in Northern Ireland. If you look at Stormont and its role here, you might give us a quick reminder of the political stalemate there. It's got to be having repercussions in a lot of sectors now, isn't it? It is. We don't have any ministers in place. We have no sitting assembly. Um, the DUP won't go back into government. And I know parties have tried over a few different issues, this being one. But in order for the government to get back up and running, you need cross-party. So Sinn Féin and the DUP have to designate speakers to get that back up and running. So, yeah, I mean, it has been said if there were a minister in place to deal with this, they could allocate funding to try and get this dealt with more quickly. They could make decisions like, okay, we're going to cut nitrates. We're going to we're going to end the nitrates derogation that is still available to farmers in the north. And I know that has become a very big issue across across the Republic as well. But we've got no minister in here to make those decisions. What we effectively have is a Secretary of State who's an MP in England making decisions on budgets, making decisions on all sorts of things that our own politicians should be deciding on. But that isn't happening because we can't get a government back up and running. And I think that that frustrates people for a number of issues, including housing, health, and everything else. And this seems to be the latest kind of disaster unfolding. But 
nothing really can be done about it apart from tinkering around the edges without the funding in place to really deal with this. Well, this is it. That really does look like it's going to impact the direct response to this bloom because this is all clearly at emergency levels now. Everyone is concerned. Are we looking at the idea that perhaps Westminster would have to step in and do something drastic or where do you see it going? To be honest, I don't have an answer and Westminster haven't really said anything about this. I do know that it is on the radar of the Office for Environmental Protection, which is a is a UK-wide body. Just to sort of explain the background, Northern Ireland doesn't have an independent environment agency like the Republic does with the Environmental Protection Agency. And we haven't for a very long time, despite rising calls for that to happen. So when Dara put out different information on the state of our rivers, lakes, there's nobody to sort of say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. So after Brexit, we had a situation where that was lacking. So the UK government decided to form an Office for Environmental Protection and they brought Northern Ireland under that umbrella, although we did have the option to form an independent agency ourselves. So the OEP covers the UK, but obviously there are issues across the UK, so they can't focus solely on the North. And we have a situation here where they are actually investigating the Department for Agriculture Environment over ammonia emissions, which would be another issue that comes with slurry and nitrates from farming. But um, they get their funding from the different agencies within the governments that they oversee. So Dara weren't able to allocate them as much money as they needed this year, the OEP. And then the OEP, as a result, wasn't able to investigate Dura for the environmental advice that they give to councils operating in the area. So it's a really sort of a strange situation where there still isn't really any independent oversight. And I don't know that this as an issue has come on to the radar of the Secretary of State. I haven't seen that he's come out and said anything about this, but I mean, if you only have to take a look at the state of the waterways across the rest of the UK with raw sewage pouring into them to maybe think that this isn't something that the Conservatives are all that urgently worried about. I mean, if in one way, Loch Ness has brought everything into sharp focus for, for the North of Ireland, then really when you see you don't have an independent environmental body, you've got political stalemate and stormant, and then you've got Westminster effectively distracted by the sounds of it by other issues. Shauna, when you look at that, what could have been done to stop this or at least limit the damage that's been caused here? I think if they'd taken action when they saw things weren't going well, I mean, the statistics prove that they haven't been going well for a very long time. This phosphorus has built up over decades. So it would have needed real, tangible political action to drive down the pollution instead of always looking to grow and grow agriculture and grow agriculture. And we had going for growth and that's been that's been followed up by a green growth strategy. So I think there's a bit of a conversation to be had here in relation to this idea that we can have exponential growth without impacting our environment. So, I mean, they could have put caps on the amount of slurry that farmers were allowed to spread on fields. They could shorten the the window that farmers are allowed to spread slurry and they could take better enforcement against farmers that are operating outside of 
legal allowances. I mean, I grew up in the countryside. I was surrounded by farms. I've seen farmers out spread slurry in the rain numerous times. It happens often. But I think we've come at a situation where it's like, I've got the slurry. My cattle are indoors in the winter. What am I supposed to do with it? You know, so maybe there is a bigger conversation to be had here in relation to, and I know this has come up as well in the Republic about reducing the herd. And maybe we need to have a sensible conversation about just how much food we're growing here. In the North, according to Dara's own st- statistics, provide enough edible protein for 10 million people. And I know 90% of what's um, what's grown in the South is also exported. So maybe as a small island, we need to start talking about this and thinking, okay, like, and I know that it brings in money and it brings in jobs and everything else, but maybe we need to have a think about, is there a better way that we could be using the large portions of land we have across the country that we've set aside for agriculture? But that's a difficult conversation to have, and we will need really, really brave politicians to have it. But I mean, I've spoken to farmers that are open to rewilding, are open to setting across like large parts of their land to to nature. They just need the support and they need the funding to be able to do that. And that will in itself create jobs. Most farmers, if you talk to them, they're barely making ends meet. And they're sort of operating to a situation where it's like, we're waiting on our single farm payments and everything else. But if there were things within that system where it was like, okay, so maybe that land was marshy and you've put agriculture on it, maybe we return that to marshland and pay that farmer to do that. So that could create jobs then within a green economy, which supports biodiversity and supports the environment. So, uh, but it's a huge, it's a huge conversation. You touched on this earlier, but what are locals saying about this algal bloom? You mentioned one woman who set up a group. What kind of campaigning is happening on the ground? They're campaigning for politicians to get back to work and do something about this. Um, They want action. They want to see a department that is being like that is on top of this. And to be honest, they haven't really been. As I said, they knew from May that this was an issue, but they didn't have their first operational task force meeting about the issue on Loch Ness until the 18th of August, something they told me after pressing them a number of times. They have decided that they will set up a steering group to look at water quality issues across the north. And I think the massive public pressure around this has pushed them to take that step, which is a good thing. And, you know, it's better late than never, to be honest. And I think the public would like to see that become a cross-departmental group where we talk about this issue across planning. We talk about it, you know, in regards to the Rivers Agency. We talk about it in relation to our waterways and tourism as well. But the public, I think, would also like the bed of Loch Ness to come back into public ownership. So the public have more of a say about what happens with it. So we've got this strange situation where, for historic reasons, um, that we probably shouldn't really go into here. There's an English Earl who owns the bed of Loch Ness. So he's called Lord Shaftesbury and he inherited that from his father when he passed away. So he owns the rights to the bed. So that means that he gets to issue licenses for bird shooting and hunting. That also means that the sand extractors that are operating on the bed pay him for every ton of sand that they take from the bed. 
So effectively, it's, it supplies water and there's, uh, we'll get to the sand question shortly, but so this is effectively a privately owned lake then? The bed of it is owned privately. I don't think you can own the water that's on top of it, but um, it also cuts across a serious amount of different official agencies. So we've got Dura would be involved, Northern Ireland, each Northern Ireland Environment Agency would be involved, the Department for Infrastructure would be involved, and they would oversee Northern Ireland Water, which is also a public body because we don't have water charges here. So our it's a subsidiary of a government department that would operate that for us. Um, so you've got so many different groups involved. And I think the public would like to see one group put into place to take care of the issues around Loch Ness because it's such a huge public resource. And I know there have been pushes and calls for that for well over 10 years. And I think in the past, Lord Shaftesbury has said that he was willing to, to sell it. Um, but I think we just we would need ministers in place to make this decision, basically, and to decide to take the ownership of the bed of Loch Ness back into the public. And finally, Shona, you've covered nitrates and agricultural runoff, but we did also mention sand being extracted from the lake there. Can you tell us a little bit about what that sand is used for and what type of impact the extraction of that sand has? The sand extraction's been going on for a very long time, um, probably about 60 or 70 years. And the really interesting sort of backstory to this is that it was operating without any environmental impact assessments. So you had sand companies going in and basically sucking up millions of tons from the bed of the lock. And the interesting thing about that is, is that the fish that are in the lock lay their eggs in gravel and they would be in very close proximity to where these huge sand barges go into and they basically stick a big hose down through the lock and they suck up all the sand from the bed and they've been doing that for decades so probably about 10 years ago there was a really sort of a really vocal environmental group called Friends of the Earth NI who raised raised this issue and sort of said you know when environmental impact assessments became a thing in law that this has been going on for decades without any environmental oversight without any look at the impact that it's having on the fish, on the flies, on the eels, on the birds. And we know for a fact that the the bird populations around Loch Ness have been plummeting for some time. And this could all be interlinked because as well as sewage and everything else, you've got this huge industrial process happening on the water. But instead of stopping it, the department decided that they would call it in and have a look at it. And a couple of years ago then, the former SDLP infrastructure minister gave it the green light to go ahead for another 15 years. But an interesting thing has happened in in that time where the sand extractors have asked for a relaxation of certain parts of the parameters that were set out. So that, that I think is still going on at the moment. Like obviously they want to be able to continue extracting sand. But the interesting thing about the sand is once it's gone, it's gone. And this sand in the bed of Loch Ness was a part of that ecosystem. So there, you know, NIEA and Dura acknowledged in the press conference that we had last week about this algae issue, that it will be having an ecological impact. But how big an ecological impact, we don't know because there was never a baseline to look at on the levels of birds, on the levels of fish, on the levels of pollution and all of those sorts of things that you could 
look at before sand extraction happened and after it happened because it has been going on for so long. But anyway, it's been allowed to continue um, under the under government license. And whether that has been having an impact on this algae, I think would need further investigation. How that would happen, I don't know, because as I said, there's no baseline to, to start from. So um, NIEA sort of said last week in the press briefing that they didn't think it would be driving up the phosphorus for the bed of the lock. They said that that can come through the body of the water without any disturbance to the bed of the lock. But if you're going in with these sand extractors and you're sucking up millions of tons to take this sand out of the bed of the lock, you're changing the ecology of the environment. You're changing the ecosystem. So I think it needs further investigation, whether this has been having an impact, but whether anybody will do that investigation is another question. And to answer your question about what the sand's being used for, it is, it's being sold. It's turning up on GAA pitches, which I saw you guys had a story on earlier in the week. And I know Tommy Green, he has investigated quite a lot of what's happened on Loch Ness around the sand extraction issue. It's being used to build roads. It's being used in construction. It's being used in all sorts of things. But once it's gone, it's gone, you know. Well, I think uh, when you combine environmental disaster and political vacuum, it really doesn't bode very well for Loch Ness at the moment. So, look, thank you so much, Shona, for joining us today and filling us in on all of that. No problem. Thank you, Laura. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Shona Cor for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>